How many of you were ever into like watching American Idol or even America's Got Talent on tele- television? Anyone? We kind of did as a family. We still like the America's Got Talent. We've no longer watch uh, American Idol. But one of my favorite uh, things, you know, they, there's this phrase about you know watching a train wreck. And it, it just means you kind of can't keep your eyes off it, even though you know what's going to happen. And there, there's uh, so oftentimes with American Idol and then even America's Got Talent, you have these individuals that come on that are going to sing or they have some talent and they, they uh, come in with all this boasting and this arrogance and this pride about being the best singer and, and all this. And you, you just know that when the, when the interview and stuff starts that way, that this is not going to end well for these individuals. It's usually the ones that come in fairly humble and quiet and gracious that just blow you away with their talent. And um, it's usually, like I said, the opposite when somebody comes in boasting with all this pride. Well, I remember when I was growing up, I um, got into sixth grade, and um, you all had to do something, whether it was choir or band or something. And so I didn't play any instruments. I had played guitar when I was real young. but um, So I decided to join choir just because I had to do it to get it out of the way. And, and that's why I went ahead and I had done that. And I remember we had to audition in pairs. So they would pair you up with somebody, and the guy that I was paired up with was just a nervous wreck, an absolute nervous wreck, and he was like, I hate singing, I can't really sing, and I got a little puffed up with pride, and I looked at him, and I said, don't worry about it, I'll make you sound good. <laughs> I found out in a hurry that I can't sing. <laughs> That's usually the way that it is, right? Boasting is not a good thing. In fact, in the scriptures, boasting is almost always a negative thing. We're not supposed to talk or brag about ourselves or puff ourselves up. Uh, a couple of days ago, um, Kimberly um, was filling out an application for my dream job, which is to work at WITS. And part of it on there asked, you know, why should we hire you? And, you know, to her credit, she's like, I hate talking about, I hate, do, I hate, you know, bragging or talking about myself. It just seems wrong. And I'd explain that, well, but this is different. This really isn't bragging. But there should be that natural affinity not to want to brag about yourself and talk about yourself. Well, this morning we're going to look at that because Paul today does some bragging. And you can tell as we read through it that he's not necessarily all that comfortable with the bragging, with the boasting, if you will. But he has a reason, he has some reasons for doing that. Remember, He wrote this letter primarily because he was getting ready to make another trip to the Corinthians. The the last trip that he had made didn't go so well. It was a painful visit, he said. He encountered a bunch of false teachers. He had to make some emergency trip there. We don't know why, but something called on Paul to rush over to Corinth because something was broken, something was happening. We don't know what that is, and so he rushes over there, and when he arrives... It's a bit chaotic, we know that. Um, There were false teachers there, he calls them super apostles. Um, There were people in the church that had begun to disparage Paul. They no longer thought very highly of Paul. He followed that visit up with a letter, and that letter was referred to as a severe letter, and that didn't really go over very well with them either. And so he's writing this letter here to say, I'm going to come back, and you need to be prepared for me to come back. I don't want a repeat of what happened the last time. And so this letter, the end of this letter here, the last few chapters, serves as sort of a, um, a wake-up call, if you will. It serves as a way to warn them to say, I'm going to come again, and let's try to avoid what happened last time. And ultimately, it's all up to you. I'm going to come to you, as we learned last week, in this meekness and tenderness of Christ, but... Ultimately, how it goes when I get there is up to you because I'm coming prepared to have to discipline you if I have to, but I don't want to have to do that. 
And so he lays this, this last section out with this plea to them. What happens today is he's going to take on some of these false teachers. And in order to do that, he's going to have to boast to some degree. And it's primarily because the Corinthians had fallen prey to the boasting of the false teachers. Now in order for them to be ready for Paul's visit, a few things have to be accepted by them. The first was that Paul was going to have to be bold with them if necessary. They had to be prepared for that. The second was that in spite of the false prophets' claims about Paul only being bold when he was present with them, or I'm sorry, only being um, bold when he was not around them, they were going to have to accept the fact that Paul could be bold in person as well. And the third thing they had to understand was that these false teachers, these super apostles, had infiltrated them and were taking them captive. And so Paul, as he prepares for that, and as he gets them ready, he's going to do a little bit of boasting here. But when he does this, it's primarily motivated out of concern for them, and it's done to protect them. And so that's really the two key points that we're going to focus on today. The first one, again, being that Paul did this, he boasted, if you will, primarily out of concern for the Corinthians. So that's going to be our first point. The second point is that he actually boasts, or he does it, because he's trying to protect them. And you'll see how all of this fits together. Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 11, 1 Corinthians. Paul begins by calling on the Corinthians to put up with a little foolishness. Look at what he says in verse 1. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. Now, a couple of other English translations do a little bit better job of rendering that verse. The New American Standard, I, I don't necessarily care for the way that they translate that verse, the end of it. The ESV, the Holman, and the NIV do a little bit better job, and they say it this way. Please put up with me, as I boast a little bit. In other words, it's not that they were putting up with him. He's basically begging them, saying, I'm going to boast a little bit, and I hope that you're willing to put up with me as I boast. He says that it's a little foolishness. Notice he calls it that. It's a little foolishness. The reason was, first, boasting in oneself is generally a bad thing. Paul recognizes that. He notices or he realizes that it's foolish to boast in yourself. Second, Paul should not have had to boast. Think about this for a moment. Paul had no reason to boast. He's going to tell us a little bit later, probably next week, in chapter 11, his qualifications to be an apostle. It involves a tremendous amount of suffering. In fact, if you, as you go through that catalog of things that Paul had to deal with, you wonder, what in the world is he thinking? Why did he continue to do what he did? There was a tremendous amount of suffering and hardship on the apostle Paul. And so... There's really two reasons why he shouldn't boast. One is it's foolishness, and the second is he didn't need to. They should have known of anything, who he was. But they had forced his hand on this, and they put him in the uncomfortable position of having to talk about himself or to defend himself to these false teachers. In verses 2 through 4, we find that his motivation or his boasting was motivated by his concern. Look at verses 2 and following. For he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you to a pure version. There are three primary concerns. The first one is this, he was concerned about their fidelity with Christ. Paul, when he came, preached Christ to them. That's pretty clear in Paul's ministry that the only thing Paul was ever interested in was people following Christ. Their love and devotion purely to Christ, nothing more, not to a system, 
not to religious philosophy or practices, but what Paul wanted for his, his readers and for those that he wanted to Christ was pure, undisturbed dedication to Christ and to Christ alone. He wanted their faith to be totally dependent on Christ, not their religion, not him. In fact, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, um, he talks about these people that had said, I'm a follower of Apollos. No, I follow Paul. I like Peter most. And they had become disciples of certain apostles, and Paul chastised them for that. He said, you're not supposed to be followers of men. You're supposed to be a follower of Christ. Do we see any of that in our church today? People follow people rather than following Christ. And so his first concern was their fidelity with Christ. And so he needed to boast, and we'll see why here in a second, because of that concern that they were falling away from total devotion to Christ. Second concern was that they were being led astray. He says in verse 3, look at that, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of a devotion to Christ. So his second concern was that they were being led astray by these super apostles, these false teachers, from a very simple faith in Christ to a much more complicated thing. We don't know what they taught specifically, but if you go to the book of Galatians, you get an idea of what some of very similar folks had done. They had come into the church and they said, well, it's, it's fine that you know Christ, but we've got to add a bunch of stuff from the law to that. And they had to start jumping through the hoops of the law. And so their very simple faith in Christ turned into a complicated legalistic system of obeying the law, thinking they could somehow earn God's favor. Again, do we see any of that in the church today? Faith is supposed to be simple. It's just dependence on Christ. So Paul was concerned that they were being led astray into something much more complex and being led away from the simplicity of relationship with Jesus Christ. When I was sharing with this gentleman down in Dayton, he had actually been a part of a church for about seven or eight years, was a leader, but it was not a church where people were saved. He didn't know Christ. It was pretty clear. And so as I shared the gospel with him, I said, you know, you come from a church background, but clearly you don't have a relationship with Christ. And so I shared with him just it's just the simplicity of knowing Jesus Christ. That's it. So when we talked, we didn't talk about anything other than just Christ and his salvation being bound to Christ. I think that was sort of fresh to him. It made sense. Is that really that simple? Yes. And Paul was concerned that they were being led astray from that. His third concern was that they had lacked discernment. Look at what he says in verse 4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you received a different spirit which you did not or which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. It's an interesting way that he says that. In other words, he's basically saying, when, when these people come into your church, they come in with a different gospel. The Jesus that they preach is nothing like the Jesus of the Scriptures. They come in with a, a different spirit about them. But, boy, you guys get all geared up. You love it. He says, you bear this beautifully. You love it when these people come in this way. There's a individual I went to seminary with who had left after the first year or two, and he was actually a part of my first church here in town. He's out in California now. And uh, he goes to a church that is closely associated with Joel Osteen. And I find myself sometimes thinking when he, when he praises Joel Osteen and others, I'm thinking, wow, what, what in the world 
happen? How can you bear what that individual teaches? Joel Osteen is a false teacher. He's part of the prosperity gospel. He doesn't understand the scriptures or the power of God. He's got 60,000, 80,000 people that show up at his church. But it boggles my mind that people bear him so beautifully when there is so much wrong with what's taught there. And that's what Paul was afraid of. And so he's looking at these Corinthians and he's saying, I've got this great concern for you. You're, you're leaving this simple devotion to Christ for other things. You're being led astray by these false teachers. And I'm afraid you've lost your ability to discern truth from error. Discern false gospel from the true gospel. And so that left Paul in a very interesting position. Because partly the reason they were there was because of the way they looked at these false apostles, these super apostles. These guys would come into the church, Paul says, with letters of recommendations. They would come in with all kinds of arrogant boasting about their credentials and about how many followers they had. And they would travel the circuit. And so they come into the church and that impressed the Corinthians terribly. And Paul says, you bear that beautifully. You're so impressed by all of this boasting and this arrogance. So how is Paul supposed to respond to that? Well, one of the ways that he responds to that is he puts up his own credentials up against theirs. He puts his own credentials up against theirs. Look at verses 4 and 5. 4, 5, and 6. He says, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent, that's the word super, those super apostles, that's a derogatory term that he uses there. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. So Paul starts by saying, I'm not inferior to these guys. Now that was the accusation. These false apostles had come in and accused Paul of being inferior to them. Paul was a tent maker by trade. That was something they despised. It was manual labor and it was beneath them. A teacher, a rabbi, should not work with his hands. He should make his living by charging people for his teaching. That was standard philosophy within the Greek and the Roman culture. Philosophers would come in and would charge fees for their teaching. The more you charge, the better you are. The more credentials you have. And so Paul comes in, working with his hands, and they got a problem with that. So these, these part of the argument apparently is that these guys would come in and say, come on, really? Look at Paul, he's working with his hands. We've got these letters of recommendation. We are far superior to Paul. You ought to be listening to us. Paul may not have been able to boast in his eloquence, he says, but he could boast in one thing, his knowledge. What's interesting here is he says, even if I am unskilled in speech, I think I've shared this many times before, But within the Greco-Roman culture, rhetoric, your ability to speak, was uh, something that was highly praised. It was the way you did it, not what you said. They argued for style over substance. In other words, you get two philosophers that would go up on stage and would begin to debate philosophical things, and the person who won was the dude who could do it best, not the one who made the strongest argument. They placed all their emphasis on style over substance. How it looked. 
how they made, how they were made to feel, the emotion involved with it. Um, there was a there's a movie that came out quite a few years ago. I think it's called A Knight's Tale, and it's this story about this guy who's a um, he's basically a, you'd call him a slave, and he's working for this jouster. Who, in order to joust, you had to be part. You had to have royal blood in you. But this guy didn't have royal blood, but he wanted to joust. But um, so anyway, the story, as the story goes, the guy who does the jousting, I think, either gets injured or gets killed. So this guy basically takes over his position, puts the armor on, and becomes a jouster. Well, as part of the movie, there's this one character, and his only job is before the jouster goes out to joust. He stands up and with this amazing eloquence brags about the jouster. And it's the more over the top you can be, the better off or the, the better you are. And the crowds are almost as interested, sometimes more so, in that than they are the actual jousting. And I love the movie because the guy that's in this role kind of learns to do that. And he gets up there and he just, he's so over the top. And the crowd, as they listen to this, gets worked up over and over to where it's almost like you've got a god that's about ready to get on the horse and do the jousting. And it's actually not too far off from the truth of what it was like during medieval times. It was important. It's the way you said things, not so much what you said. Do you think we struggle with that in the church today ever? Do you think we have teachers or pastors or leaders where it's much more... Style over substance? I see a couple of heads nod. So the only way Paul could ultimately deal with this was to say, hey, I'm being accused of being inferior to these guys. Now you're right, I may not be as skilled in my speech, in my rhetoric. So you're right about that. Maybe I'm not as flashy. Maybe I'm not as eloquent. Maybe I I can't make the great sounding emotional arguments that these guys make. But you know what? When it comes to knowledge, my understanding of God and His Word and Christ, I'm not inferior to them. In other words, they've got no substance. In essence, what Paul is saying here is, I may not have much style, and I may be inferior there, but I certainly have much more substance when it comes to knowledge. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to Paul. This is the same audience. When I came to you, this is verse 1 of chapter 2, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. And wisdom there, think of that as not Biblical wisdom, but philosophy. I didn't come to you with speech or philosophy, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. What was Paul saying there? Paul said, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with with this Greek rhetoric, this fancy-sounding stuff. I came to you in weakness, and I just shared with you the good news of Jesus Christ, because I wanted your faith built not on me, the wisdom of men, but on Christ. 
Dave Rancifer and uh, Steve Schmeckel will probably remember Paul Cox from Campus Crusade for Christ. I remember Paul Cox was a pastor who would preach um, at many of the big conventions we would have with Campus Crusade for Christ. And I remember a story he shared one time about when he came to these conventions and he would get up to speak, how he would oftentimes throw up before coming out and speaking because he would be that nervous. I talked with a pastor not you know, probably a year or two ago. Um, some of you actually would know him. And as we sat down and we ate lunch together, he shared with me how every time he gets in that pulpit, there's a certain amount of fear and trepidation because he recognizes that as I get in this pulpit, I'm sharing the word of God with people and that's, that's, that's what they need to hear. It isn't about me. It's not about my skills. And there were numerous times where he looked at me and he said, I never went to seminary. I don't, I don't have all the... And I, I kept looking at him and saying, it really doesn't matter, dude. Because he's somebody that he opens the word every Sunday when he gets in the pulpit and that's what he teaches from. And he's fantastic at it. But he's got this humility about himself where he doesn't want the flash and the flare and all that to be what draws people into the word with him in the morning. He wants instead that they might have their faith completely built not upon him and his persona and what he does, but just on Christ. So what he wants people to see when he walks into that pulpit is Christ and Christ alone. And when he leaves, he wants them to remember that. And so that's what Paul is saying here. And so when Paul looks at these Corinthians, he's got this great concern. Again, that's our first point of this, is that Paul ended up having to say, look, I'm not inferior to these people. He had to, he had to engage in a little bit of foolish boasting. I'm not inferior to, these guys, inferior to these guys. And I'm not because I don't focus on the things they do, which is all the pomp and the circumstances and the style and all that, the rhetoric, the letters of credential they come in with, all the letters after their name. I, I come into you with the simplicity of Christ because I want your faith to be built on that. And so what drove Paul to do a little bit of boasting about himself was purely because of his concern about how they had been drawn away by boasting. Now, this is just a taste of what Paul's going to do. We'll get to what he does next week where he basically goes through the litany. You want to compare these guys to me? But what he boasts in are his weaknesses, not his strengths. They came in boasting in their strengths. Paul boasts about his weaknesses. So he starts by saying, allow me to be a little foolish here. Allow me to boast a little bit because apparently you folks, meaning the Corinthians, like that. You like this boasting. You like this, these people talking about themselves, laying down their credentials. And so Paul does, but he does it in a very different way. Now I said the second part of our time this morning is that Paul's boasting was intended to protect them. So not only was it motivated out of concern rather than puffing himself up, it was done because he was trying to protect them. And this comes about in kind of an interesting way. Look at, um, well, put your fingers about verse 7. We'll start that in a second. Paul ministered to the Corinthians without charging them. And that's at the heart of what he's talking about here. The super apostles would come in charging. In other words, had demanded payment for their services. That was fairly standard. In ancient Greek and Roman culture, philosophers and teachers were expected to charge. If they didn't charge, they weren't respected. They couldn't do anything for free. And that was part of the problem. Manual labor by teachers, philosophers, much like Paul, 
was looked down upon. That's why Paul was looked down upon, because he worked with his hands. He made tents. It was felt that if he had anything of value to teach, then you would recognize that and you would demand getting paid, paid for it. See, the idea was that if you didn't charge for it, it wasn't of much value. You didn't think all that highly of your teaching. So why should anybody listen? There was a certain pride and self-satisfaction, too, for the listeners. There was a certain arrogance in supporting your favorite teachers. It's almost like politics today, where some get a certain kick out of supporting certain causes because of what they get back in exchange. It makes them feel good. I support these causes, you know, and I can put that bumper sticker on my car or other things, you know. Um, Some people donate quietly. Some people donate very loudly because of how it makes them feel or the things that they're, they're proud of. And so, in Paul's day, he had these two things going against him. One is that he worked with his hands, which automatically made it look like there was no value in what he taught. But the other part of that was, was ultimately that um, by doing that, he was robbing them of an opportunity because they saw it as, you won't let us support you. And that's an insult to us. And so he had those two things going against him. And so the false teachers had come in and were basically saying just that. Paul doesn't love you. He won't let you support him. If Paul really loved you, he would charge you for his teaching. Because that's what we do. Well, Paul had a problem with that. Look at verses 7 through 9. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you without charge? I robbed other churches by making wage or by taking wages from them to serve you. So some were claiming Paul was sinning against them by not charging them a fee. We could institute that policy here if you'd like. Anybody think I'm sinning if I don't charge you a fee this morning? Charge a ticket? Admission? Put Steve there as a bouncer? No? Paul said he humbled himself. What he means by that phrase is that he was making tents. He came to them. He did not charge them a fee. Elsewhere he says, I worked with my hands so as not to be a burden to you. He also says he accepted gifts from other churches. There's no question that Paul had to rely on the support of other people. And so other churches gave to Paul's ministry. The thing he didn't do was he wouldn't charge the church he's ministering to. He wouldn't come in and say, well, I'll bring the gospel to you if if you can, you know, cough, cough up the stuff. I'll pass the tray around. Instead, other churches that had come to Christ would join Paul in his ministry, and they would then give so that he could minister to them. In other words, they supported Paul's ministry of going out and leading other people to Christ. And so Paul here tells me, he says, do you think for some, for some reason, do you think that I robbed you by doing that? Are you really accusing me of sin by operating that way? That's kind of backwards thinking. But that's the way that these folks thought. I want you to turn to, uh, I think it's verses 19 and 20, just a little bit further down. Listen to what Paul says about these individuals. He says, For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if somebody enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone who hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. What he's just done there is he said, Look, you're accusing me of sinning against you because I come to you and I don't charge you a fee. 
I don't burden you in any way. I take care of all of my needs and needs of my men. Other churches have given to us so that we can come to you and we can do this totally so that we are not a burden to you and somehow you claim that I'm sinning against you but at the on the other side of the coin, you've got these false teachers who have come in, charge you a fee, and they slap you in the face. They enslave you. They burden you. How does that work exactly? I sense that Paul is being gracious here because I can think of stronger words to use. Paul says in verse, the end of verse 9, chapter 11, verse 9, he says, I'm going to continue to do it. Paul could have said, okay, fine, if it's going to help me, I'll charge you a fee if that helps. Maybe you'll respect me if I do that. But instead he says, no, I'm going to continue just as I am. I'm not going to burden you. So he's boasting here about not charging them to preach the gospel to them. And it's designed to protect them. And the way that it does this is he says it calls out the false apostles, these super apostles. Why? Because it puts his behavior in stark contrast to theirs. In other words, Paul sets the standard. This is the way it's supposed to be. Look at what they're doing to you. And so look at verses 10 through 11. We'll look at um, just the first couple of verses of 10 through 15. I'm sorry. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine, meaning this boasting that I'm, I come to you without charge, will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows that I do. Paul refused to not boast. In this case, he said, I'm going to go ahead and boast about not charging you a fee. Why? It's because I do love you that I do that. It's because Paul loved the Corinthians that he would continue to boast. Look at verse 12. But what I am doing, I am, or I will continue to do, here he tells us why, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. In other words, Paul says here, these super apostles were boasting about their equality with Paul, the fact that they were also superior to Paul. And Paul says, I'm going to cut them off at the knees. Because what they're doing is not right. One part of their argument was that Paul was illegitimate. That only they were legit and superior because they charged a fee. However, rather than being apostles, Paul says they're fakes. Look at verse 13. He says, For such men are false apostles. They're deceitful workers. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. Think about that for a minute. He uses pretty strong language there. They're false apostles. They're deceitful workers. They disguise themselves as apostles. Again, I ask the question, do you think we see any of this in the church? I I turn on TBN every once in a while just because I like seeing a train wreck. Seriously, I look, I'll be, just need five or ten minutes to kill at night while I'm finishing up some stretching and I'm like, I want to go see these guys, these deceivers the Benny Hins and the others who have been shown for years to be nothing but charlatans. Absolute charlatans. They're false apostles. They're deceitful workers. Watching Kenneth Copeland talk about his three jets and why he can't fly in an airplane because it's filled with demons, as he says. Sitting with average folks. Paul says, that's who these people are. They call themselves superior, super apostles. But Paul says, 
I set the standard so I can cut them off at the knees. Look at verses 14 through 15. Paul says, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants... Who do you suppose he's referring to there? It's not surprising if his servants, these false apostles, also disguise themselves as serpents or servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Paul's got some pretty harsh words. Now, Paul's intent is not to disparage those who make their living by the gospel. In fact, Paul, again, received gifts from other churches. But he met his own needs primarily as he would travel with working with his own hands. But he also defended the rights of those to make their living by the gospel. I won't have you turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he does about 14 or 15 verses supporting the idea that the one who makes his living by the gospel should be able to live by the gospel. And in some respects, Paul did that. He could not have survived on just making tents. Think of you trying to live part-time and pay all of your bills. But Paul did as much with his hands as he could to take the burden off of the churches that he would minister to. So he basically tells us that even though I have the right to make my living that way, in some respects he chose not to, and he tells us why in a couple of different places in the scripture, but one was he just simply didn't want to burden those that he went to. He didn't want to burden the church. But the second is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul didn't want the gospel to be something he preached out of compulsion, meaning he didn't want it to be a job. He wanted to do it willfully, freely. He didn't want to have to be able to go into a place like Corinth and say, you know, I'm a little short on some cash, so I'm going to rent a hall down the road here, and I'll charge a fee so you come in the door because I'm a little short on cash this week. So I'll, pre- I'll preach the gospel as a way of putting money back in my pocket so I can have my spending money. Paul said, I don't want to do it out of compulsion. He didn't want money hanging over his head. He didn't want that driving what he did. I'll be real honest. Um, Partly because of the way we do church in the United States here, oftentimes pastors find themselves in the difficult position of it almost becoming a job. And sometimes the joy is sucked out of it. There are pastors I know who feel restrained in a certain positions and roles and other things that they have to fulfill because they're the pastor of the church and they're, they're, they're salaried or they're employed and their heart is over here ministry-wise, but because their job requires that they do these six other things, they do these six other things. And it becomes something they do out of compulsion. And there's no joy in it. Some feel they can't spend their time in the specific gifting and areas where God has aligned them. And there can be that burden sometimes. And Paul didn't want it to be that way. So, by not demanding compensations from the Corinthians, by working with his own hands and providing for his own needs and also accepting gifts from others to help him to minister to them, Paul was able to confront these false apostles and say, look at them and then look at me. And Paul, remember, starts by saying, this is a little foolish for me to have to do this. Paul didn't feel comfortable doing that. He didn't feel comfortable saying, I do it differently than what they do it like. But he felt it was necessary to do that because that's the way the Corinthians were thinking. Now that applies to us in some respects where Kimberly, she's filling out an application for wits. Because our culture and society demands when you do a job interview that you talk about yourself 
Sometimes you have to talk about yourself. Sometimes you have to say, okay, here's my strengths. And that's appropriate to do. It's not arrogant boasting. But Paul knows that in this particular instance that it's a bit foolish for him to have to do this because it, first off, shouldn't have been required. They knew who Paul was. The guy had a resume longer than almost any of the other apostles. And we're going to see that next week as he goes through that list of things. One of the major shortcomings, and we'll wrap up with this, one of the major shortcomings of the, of the Corinthians was that they favored style over substance. They liked this boasting. They really did. Um, I think this is a huge problem for our church today. You know, it's interesting how we are drawn to popular things. Here's what's interesting to me. All of a sudden there's a Christian book on the number one bestseller list. And right away everybody runs out to buy it. Without always understanding, well, where does that author stand theologically? Um, what have they taught before? Or um, what's their behavior like? What do we see about them when they're teaching or preaching or other... I mean, you know, it's interesting because Joel Osteen, all he's got to do is put his name on a book and it'll sell. Why are we drawn to that? He's dynamic. He's popular. We're drawn to those kind of things. That's a huge mistake because oftentimes we set aside our discernment when that happens. You know why false teachers get away with false teaching? Because we like the way they do it. We like the way they say it. That's the reality of it. I'll be real frank. When I flip on TBN at night and I watch Kenneth Hagen or Kenneth Copeland or the old Jimmy Swaggart do what they... Man, they can turn it on. They really can. And people just swallow it up because they, they're made to feel good or they like the way they look. There's a reason why... Benny Hinn parades around with $1,000 suits and his embroidery because it looks good. And we're drawn to that, are we not? Maybe we are right here in this church, but you know what I'm getting at. The church struggles with that. You know, I sat down with Ed DeZago one time and it was kind of interesting because Ed, I would meet with Ed on Wednesday nights and he would come in and occasionally he'd get all fired up. He'd start writing stuff on the board, you know, and he'd start, sometimes he'd even be writing Greek up there, you know, and he just expects me to understand all of it, which sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't, <laughs> you know. And um, there was this one particular time where Ed and I were discussing something and Ed looked right at me. And, and I, I love the guy for this. He looked right at me and he made this comment about um, he was much more educated than I was. But it wasn't this arrogant boast it was that he was trying to help me understand something as we were working through a text. And it was a comment he made about how we have to learn to respect somebody's knowledge of the scriptures instead of other things. And his kind of his point that he was making as we, as we talked there was that um, that's what gave him the qualifications to teach me and instruct me that night was his understanding of the scriptures, his training and his work in the scriptures. It wasn't the fact that he's dynamic when he gets on stage or anything else. And it was, it was I, I would pour, sort of liken that to Paul's foolish boasting. Meaning that Ed wasn't boasting in arrogance. What he was saying was, I'm qualified. And he knew that I'd understand and appreciate that. Does that make sense? So not all boasting, if you will, is... is a, a bad thing, but there are times where we as a church have to recognize and understand that we can be so drawn away 
by prideful, arrogant, boasting, or, or other things. I, I think of how we are, you know, we see all of the um, the bestseller books, or we see all of the famous um, teachers and preachers who show up at a stadium or show up somewhere else, and people flock to them simply because they're popular. And we don't oftentimes evaluate and use our discernment. And that's why this stuff thrives. I remember the um, Sarah Young's books on, um, what's the name of the, Jesus Calling. Um, At one point, um, she had five books in the top ten bestseller books in Christian stores. And her stuff, it's, it's basically, it's blasphemy is what it is. It, I mean, she's talking on behalf of Jesus, saying a lot of things that Jesus would never say. And um, yet, the church just ate the stuff up. Absolutely ate it up. Why is that? You read her stuff, it's emotional. It's, we love the way she says it. She just speaks to me right here, in the heart. You know, whatever it is. So, with that, I think that we just have to, and I think the practical stuff for us is that we have to sort of be on guard ourselves. I find myself sometimes being captivated by the way people write. You know, I I, I use commentaries to, to back up the work that I do in a text. And sometimes I find that I get caught up in how things are being said, and I have to really stop and say, wait, wait a minute. This guy says this really well. I love the way he writes. And then I have to stop and go, well, wait a minute. Is what he's saying, the substance of what he... And sometimes I find that he may have said something very well, and I kind of drop my guard. And it wasn't until I stopped and went, wait a minute. Put the discernment cap back on and go back and look. at What did he say and how does it line up with scriptures? And I find myself going, I'm not so sure what he's saying lines up with the scriptures. But man, the way he said it, sure, that would have been great to quote that in the pulpit. And so I think as a church, we need to be very, very careful with that because we don't want to be like the Corinthians and be led astray simply because of the way people do things or the things that they say or how many books they sell or anything else.